Hello everyone, and welcome to the pilot episode of Halfway Expert. I'm Dr. Paul Moffat, and I'm joined this time by archaeologist Stephanie Holmhofer. Hello. Hello. So, before we really get started, Stephanie Holmhofer, let me tell you a bit about yourself. <laughs> Sounds good. Teach me. You are an archaeologist from BC. Mm -hmm. uh, your biography online says that you live in Ottawa, but that's not true anymore because your Twitter handle says you're back in BC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have an associate degree in forensics, which I want to get back to in a second, a bachelor's degree in anthropology and native studies, and a master's degree in anthropology. I actually want in a second to get back to that also because you're an archaeologist but your degree is in anthropology mm -hmm. people might not know how that makes sense you've done a fair bit of work throughout your career uh so far talking about archaeology to non-archaeologists kind of like you are doing right now your public engagement work is clearly a passion for you that seems based on the things you've written and said and do it seems like something that is important to you and you care a lot about yes your first degree in forensics seems to me uh, incredibly relevant to archaeology, because in a lot of ways, archaeology is like a kind of forensic science, like, or rather, maybe I should say, forensic science is like a kind of archaeology. You measure and quantify the data, and then you make interpretive judgments about what happened in the past based on the physical evidence of the present. That seems to me to describe forensics and archaeology. Mm -hmm. You used to work for in Ottawa for Patterson Group, but now you do something else because Patterson Group is Ontario only? Yes. You wrote your master's thesis, which, by the way, I've read, on glass beads of the uh, sexwoman. You are trained as a bioarchaeologist, which is also called an osteoarchaeologist. Osteoarchaeology, as the name implies, is archaeology focused on bones. That's why your name on Twitter is Bones Canada. And your website is Bones Stones Books, because bones. <laughs> you also work quite a bit, especially in your public-facing talks and writing on pseudo-archaeology. Pretty close. Um, my first degree is not specifically in forensics. Okay. It's um, in criminology. But I did focus a lot on forensics within that. Okay. Yeah. I see. Criminology is a broader field and forensics is a specific a specialization basically yeah criminology is just like the study of crime um right so there are sort of many different branches off of it let's start with field notes an understanding of your field in general what exactly is archaeology i assume most listeners are vaguely familiar with archaeology in concept but they are not experts like you and me so let's start at the beginning. Archaeology is a study of people in the past based on physical evidence. Yes. All three of those are important to the definition. Yes. The study of people, the study of people in the past, and the study of people in the past based on physical evidence. And that's, we said, I said a second ago that your, uh, the words on your degree are anthropology, which is study of people. So study of people mm -hmm. in the past on, based on physical evidence is the subfield of, of anthropology that is archaeology. Yes. 
anthropology is, is kind of a, a four field discipline. That's what a lot of people describe it as. Um, so you've got within anthropology, you've got um, archaeology, um, linguistics and social cultural anthropology. Um, so it's a, a lot of different things, but it sort of all just involves different um, different ways of, of looking at people, understanding people, learning about people. Yeah, that makes sense. And then when you're doing that specifically using physical evidence, that makes it archaeology. That real emphasis on physical, yes? Yeah, on specific on material objects. Material objects. All right. Yeah. So archaeologists often express annoyance that they are confused with paleontologists. So let's clear that up. Yeah. The important difference there, paleontologists, not humans, right? If it's not humans, right. it's not archaeology. Right. So, uh, and then geology, like there's other fields that are, that intersect with archaeology that use some of the same methods and study same of the same, some of the same things like history yeah. would study the past and humans in the past, but based on written records. And so that overlaps with archaeology, but archaeology is when it's based on material objects of which material books may be included, but historians are concerned with the text on the book. Archaeologists yeah. are concerned with the material object. Yeah. And geology also. Archaeologists would uh, be concerned, would be, it would be important to archaeology to understand how the earth uh, works and how rocks work and how the stratus and how you understand the layers, which is exactly overlapping with geology. But as, yep. so far as that concerns what it tells us about humans in the past, that makes it the sphere of archaeology. Yes. Yeah, geology is very useful to know uh, for archaeology. Um, I like to think of archaeology as having six distinct aspects or stages. Mm. Two in the field, two in the lab, and two in public. So in the field, you've got uh, discovery and recovery. In the lab, you've got observation and description or analysis and interpretation or detective work. And in public, you've got teaching. Uh, and I mean, teaching as it's focused on interacting with the public and teaching as it's focused on interacting with other experts. Uh, yep. The only change is that, um, and I might be bursting a lot of bubbles here, uh, archaeologists don't really discover anything. Um, discovery is a, a word we're trying to, to move away from. Discovery implies that it, it's something that's not been known before. And because it's people making the objects we study, um, we're working with descendant communities <laughs> most of the time. Um, we we uncover objects, but we don't discover objects because at some point in time, whether in the past or or modern descendant community, somebody has memory of this object. Somebody knows about this object. So it's not that it's not known. Right. Um, we just happen to be brushing some dirt off of it. And I suppose even if the people who have memory of it, like even if there's no one living who has any memory of it, that still doesn't mean that you discovered something. If it was made by people, people knew about it. That makes <laughs> a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like the the whole Columbus discovered America. Well, no, it was already there. Yeah, yeah, Columbus didn't really discover anything. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's super useful. Awesome. Um so uncovery. Yep. Is that the preferred term then? Yeah, yeah, uncovered, uncovery. It's a good term. It's a better term. <laughs> so in the uncovery stage, mm-hmm. there's like uh several ways you could uncover something that you want to study as an archaeologist. And the first would be like, if it's obvious or visible ruins or historical buildings that aren't ruined mm-hmm. or, you know, earthworks that are just on the surface and visible. Mm-hmm. Then there would be um, accidental finds like a farmer plowing a field, turns something up right. and then alerts archaeologists or during construction of a new parking lot they uncover the bones of richard the yep. second that kind of thing yep uh there's aerial photography which shows a lot of how the landscape might look in ways that aren't necessarily visible from the earth mm-hmm. so for example things like stone walls uh stunt the growth of crops so there's this place that looks like it's the shape of a wall where all the crops are are not as Mm-hmm. tall that's an indication that there might be something buried that could be uncovered mm-hmm. or dark earth indicates ancient dishes in those places mm-hmm. uh you can find things with geophysical tests like electrical resistivity or magneto- magnetometry mm-hmm. for example areas where garbage has been dumped they're going to have higher magnetic readings than uh is average so you test the earth and if it's really magnetic there's a, it's an indication that there might be something there to find mm-hmm. um you and then there's just like systematically searching an area uh which you would mo- most likely want to do if for example uh someone's building a parking gla- garage and wants to make sure before they start building that richard ii isn't buried there mm-hmm. then you might actually make a grid and do randomized digging within the grid to test whether there's stuff there. Yep. And then by consulting uh, history and memory, you talk to people and say, Hey, was there something here once? Or you read books and say, Hey, was there something here once? Those are, that is how those are, as far as I can see, that is all the ways that you might discuss, might uncover something. Yep. Uh, quite often, it, it sort of all goes hand in hand as well. You've, you've got multiple, within a single project, you've got sort of multiple methods that you're using. Uh, another method that we're sort of trying to push a lot for is just using existing collections. Um, things that have already been excavated recently, in the past, it doesn't really matter, but to, to move away from um, having to excavate more and more just to use what's already available. Um, that's another uh, another method we use. Now, European archaeology, I understand, has a higher emphasis lately, especially on preservation rather than uh, recovery and uncovering things. That would be because, like, don't go around digging up stuff when we haven't even understood what already exists. Mm-hmm. Right? Now... I read that that's European archaeology especially, uh, and American archaeology uh, not so much, and I didn't find anything in one week of research telling me one way or the other about Canadian, except that 
in general, Canadian archaeology is a little bit more like British archaeology than American um, in its approach. Uh, yeah, there. Uh, I guess so. Yeah, there's it. Archaeology in different countries is sort of governed by different rules, uh, different laws, and depending on what those laws are saying is sort of how is what guides the way you do archaeology. Um, okay. So, yeah, it, there is a push for more preservation, and there should be more preservation. Um, it, different materials used as well in different countries and different building styles um, also sort of play into what's even available to preserve, physically available, right. um, if you're talking about material objects. Because material objects in, uh, for example, the uh, prairies of Canada, where they generally built things out of fabric and wood, yeah. th that has a limited amount, uh, that has a limited shelf life. Yeah those things decay much faster than places where they've been built out of stone. Yeah, exactly. And and because of that, the emphasis has long been on stone buildings and stone structures. Um, and there's a big push to start moving some of that focus and recognizing that not everything was made out of stone and things that weren't made out of stone are just as important as objects that were made out of stone or, or structures made out of stone. But how do you find something if it's not there? Like, how would you find the fabric that has decayed? Um, if it's a historic site, a historic building, we look a lot at, we start first with maps, um, old property maps, and go from there. They'll, they'll have sort of, they generally have marked on there where the structures were. Right. Um, and then from there, we look for um, materials used for building, things like nails, um, depressions right. in, in the ground, um, a, a whole bunch of the methods that you sort of mentioned earlier, they all come into play. Right. So you don't have to actually have dig something up to use the same methods to be like, there was something here once. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. <laughs> All right. So moving on to recovery, mm -hmm. um, this has basically two important stages, okay. surveying and excavating. Surveying would be First, record the landscape as it exists before any work begins, including buildings. And a building survey is an accurate line drawing and accurate floor plan of any buildings that exist in the area where you're surveying. Mm -hmm. You'd survey, you would use photography to, I mean, record the landscape as it exists before any work begins. Mm -hmm. You can have increased accuracy with laser photography. Basically, surveying means making a detailed and accurate record of what everything was like before you even start doing any excavation because excavation effectively destroys the context. Yes. And context is important. Yes, context is everything. Right. Because obviously, I mean, maybe it's not obvious, but uh, if archaeology is concerned not with the objects for themselves, but for with the objects because of what they tell us about people in the past, then like you were talking about nails, a nail mm -hmm. doesn't mean anything on its own, but it means everything if it's in a place where you didn't know there was, or where you did know, where there was a community and they were building things and you see that there's a bunch of nails and you can surmise how they built them. And look, the building happened over here on the outside of the 
uh, settlement or inside, or there was, or everybody did some building and we can figure all that out based on where the nails are located uh, for just one example. And so the objects themselves really are much less important than the context they're found in. Yes, exactly. And that's why we, we do, um, we try to talk a lot to the public and make the public aware of that, aware of the fact that context is far more important than the objects on their, their own. Um, because quite often, like you mentioned earlier, say a farmer is plowing his field and, and pulls something up and then they bring it to an archaeologist. That's really wonderful. That's, that's amazing. And that's what, um, if you do stumble upon something archaeological, that's exactly what you should be doing, um, making archaeologists aware. But ideally, you won't physically touch the object because we need its context to, to understand more about it. Right. And that's, I like, I was talking a second ago about context in place, but we could think about context in terms of place, time, and culture. Yep. Yep. Right? And you would tell the context in time based on the uh, stratification, where it is in depth in the earth is one of the major clues to context in time. Yep. Yep. That's why. That's where geology overlaps so heavily with archaeology. Yes. So as I said, so that's everything there is to the surveying, right? Yep. Um, and then excavation, as I said, effectively destroys all the context, which would make sense to what you said a little while ago about why uh, preservation and studying what has already been excavated is increasingly being emphasized because excavation effectively destroys all the context and now... Like, that's done. Yeah. In, when archaeology was beginning as a field in the 19th century, they did not yet have the methods of preserving context that are so important now. And so a lot of that context was just destroyed. Yeah. And, and to be 100% honest, a lot of that was intentional as well. When you had... Really? Yeah. Archaeology does not have a great past. Um you have a lot of these old European archaeologists coming to America and Canada, and they sort of intentionally are destroying a lot of the context to justify a lot of the old ideas that they had in mind um, regarding First Nations people who were here long before Europeans arrived. Um, and it was just a way of, of justifying their sort of domination of the land, if you will. Um, I think this is something we're going to come back to when we're talking about pseudo-archaeology. Yeah. All right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, pseudo-archaeology is sort of definitely a, a legacy. Hmm, that's an interesting thing I didn't think of is a lot of, if the archaeologists of the past didn't follow the methodology and the uh, even the theoretical uh, underpinnings that are recognized as archaeologically sound now, mm -hmm. do they still get to be considered, you know, real archaeologists rather than pseudo? Like, isn't that what makes something pseudo that it's not following the methodology and the uh, uh, rigor yeah. of real archaeology? That's definitely part of it, for sure, one branch of it. Um, and there is a lot of discussion happening today recognizing um, the way archaeology was conducted in the past and who was conducting it in the past and how we can um, reconcile and, and make reparations and, and sort of continue moving forward and improving 
all of the, I guess not even improving, fixing everything that uh, archaeology of the past did, all the harm it caused. Um, we need to sort mm. of come to terms with with our the past of our discipline in order to keep it moving forward um, and making it better and more inclusive. I want to circle back to this when, especially when we start talking about pseudo-archaeology, because this is, seems to me really connected to a lot of the things mm -hmm. that I understand about what pseudo-archaeology mm -hmm. is. But for now, we were talking about excavation. Yes. So important in excavation is that every stage of this is recorded. You create grids of the area that's being excavated, grids so that you can locate the context of everything. You can say this was found in, you know, grid square 2B, yeah. because, and when we know exactly where that was. And in theory, the smaller the grid, the more accurate. But in practice, there's a... Uh, a diminishing returns to how small a grid can be to actually still be workable. So you work within a grid of, I don't know at all. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah. You there's, I mean, there's different stages to it as well. You sort of start with um, a, a bigger, more spread out grid, and then you work your way into a, a smaller, more specific grid. And then you re you remove the soil within the grid by remove the soil or earth uh, by layers, um, and sift each layer to ensure that you're not missing anything within that layer. And by layers, um, <laughs> we mean like uh, the soil exists not just as an undifferentiated downwards forever. There's lot there's a uh, there's layers that yep. are indicative of different historical moments, the some of which are geological, some of which are human, and you yep. remove the soil by layer and identify the layers and how they connect to each other. That's called the Harris matrix. That's yeah, that's one way of recording it. Harris is um, the Harris matrix is is really popular in Europe. Uh, okay. Not as popular in North America, but it is definitely definitely still around. People still use it. But just the idea in general of going down um, layer by layer or looking at the stratigraphy, it's called the different layers of, of soil. Um, yeah, that's that's a part of archaeology everywhere. So what would you do? What would you use? What's it called? The, what, what you use in North America, not the Harris matrix, but instead? You know, 100 percent. I don't know what exactly it's called. In North America, okay, <laughs> um, it, it varies per project. Sometimes what they'll have you do, what your project lead will have you do, is excavate in arbitrary layers. Um, so, say every ten centimeters, you fill out a sheet and say what have you found within the ten centimeters, what's different. Other times, you record by the actual stratigraphy itself. So one layer will be maybe 30 centimeters deep and then the next layer is maybe five centimeters deep because you've seen that change in soil um, right so most of the most of the projects i've been on we generally go stratigraphy by stratigraphy and within that we subdivide into arbitrary layers if it's a really really thick layer a really stick thick um, strata say 50 right. centimeters then we'll be like okay layer one a will be the top 10 centimeters, 1B, the next 10 centimeters, et cetera, et cetera. All right. Makes sense. And you like, basically the, the way you can identify the difference between the layers is again, geological training and also just like 
it looks different. It's a different color or texture or whatever. The soil looks different now. Yeah, sometimes it's really, really obvious. You'll go from, say, um, a dark brown soil to a bright orange soil. Um, or you'll go from soil that has no rocks or pebbles in it to something that's just loaded with rocks and pebbles. So sometimes it's really, really easy to spot. Uh, other mm -hmm. times it's not so easy. They're very subtle differences. And you sort of step back and out of your unit and look down and, and see if you can see from above. Um, so each project is a little bit different. Even within a project, each unit is a little bit different. And then you record the context of all finds by layer context, uh, both in the kind of horizontally by the grid and vertically by the layer, and also in terms of everything else that's found near it, which yeah. I guess would be built into find to locating it. It would yeah. naturally just happen that you know what's near it. Yeah. Um, generally you're using you're using a trowel rather than a big foot shovel because you're paying a lot of attention to the soil to like close up uh and the smaller the trowel the more experienced the archaeologist <laughs> well i i would argue that i happen to use <laughs> a fair sized trowel um, and I, I always catch a lot of grief for it. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, your trial is, is so big, but you know, it, it gets the job done. <laughs> I read That's one. that makes the archaeologist. <laughs> well, I read one thing that like, it's a superstition, a common superstition of an archaeologist, but partly yeah. because, uh, I mean, it's superstition, but a common, like, you know, uh, folk tradition among archaeologists yeah. that you use the same trowel until it wears out and so yep. the, the shorter it is the more digging you have done and that's where the smaller the trowel the more experienced the archaeologist kind of comes from and it's it's very tongue-in-cheek right i yeah yeah i believe that i've seen some pretty worn down trowels <laughs> <laughs> so that's the uh field uh sorted we've done all the field <laughs> Um, and then you go to the lab or everything after this would be called post-excavation or post-ex. Mm -hmm. um, and again, every step of this, there's a lot of, organ of observation and description involved. So the first step in the lab stage of archaeology is describe artifacts in detail, uh, mm -hmm. as detailed as possible, record details using objective and standardized language if such language exists or being as objective as possible because mm -hmm. you never know when some other archaeologist might understand uh, or perceive something in a detail that isn't standing out to you or that wasn't what you're looking for or wasn't what you cared about for this particular for your particular work or isn't your speciality, but might be someone else's. And the more detailed your records, the more someone else can come and look and say, what there you found yeah. this size of glass bead. That means something to me. Exactly. Yep. I always say, don't write anything for yourself, write it for the next person who's going to have to read it. And that's basically what I, the observation and description stage is. And, uh, not just by sight, also by touch, because they can, there are things that you can detect in the texture, not visually. Yeah. yeah. And then comes the uh, 
interpretation or detective work kind of stage of archaeology where you've got all this information, you've got the context recorded, you've got the details of the artifacts recorded. And then, mm-hmm. so what, what does that all mean? And that's uh, interpretive work that involves, you know, some a fair amount of speculation, but informed speculation. So that comes basically yeah. from experience and uh, not only your own experience, but also the uh, accumulated experience you gather from reading the experience of others. So you say like this is worn this, I don't know what I, my, uh, examples are hard to think of, but uh <laughs> this object is worn a little bit on the left side, and every time we see this kind of object that's worn a little bit on the left side, it means it was used to, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, everybody sort of has their different, like you've pointed out, everybody has a little bit of a different expertise and different experience. Uh, so it's always good to to detail your notes as much as possible because like you point out somebody else might be able to read it and say like oh well you're mentioning here everything is always worn on the left hand side we've found over here the same pattern and this is what we are able to discern Um, or even I mean the important thing is you should be getting descendant communities involved in in every project and and they're able to um, look at something or or, um, working on the project with you come across something and they'll you know, someone from a, a descendant community right away might know exactly what it is and known speculation. Right. And so the interpretation stage would be the stage where uh, living memory would be most especially invaluable because they would know how this is used and why and in what way and what it would mean if someone's, uh, again, like, I don't know, <laughs> if someone's thing is correct. Yeah. And it has a significance that might yeah, not occur yeah. to someone who, to to the archaeologist, no matter how uh, insightful or well studied they are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We might look at an, a cracked object or, or broken object and say, "Well, it's just broken." Um, somebody else might look at it and say, "No, you know, it was intentionally broken. It's broken right. for a reason." So. Yeah. Experimental archaeology involves reproducing a copy of an artifact and then using it to figure out how it gets used. That seems pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> um, and then through a combination of observations and analysis back in the previous uh, steps, the context recorded in the previous steps, you make a hypothesis or an uh, understanding of the significance of objects that you don't like anything that you don't yeah anyway you make hypotheses and reconstruct probable pictures of the lives of an individual a group or a whatever a cult entire culture maybe but that is a big undertaking it is yeah it really is and and sometimes you can sometimes you can do it sometimes you can't sometimes it's not even necessarily piecing together something about uh, an individual or a group. Sometimes it's something as simple as I figured out what this room right. was used for. Um, kind of thing. Yeah. And then uh, we have preservation and storage is a kind of a, a step I skipped when I was talking about the six stages that I perceived, because even though it's very important, it's, uh, 
on the way from the observation to the from the observation and analysis to the kind of uh teaching is you preserve the objects so that someone else can study it in the past and also in the future and also so that you know you destroy as little as you can mm-hmm. and then teaching has basically two it seems to me two aspects right one would be interpretation of, of artifacts for the public in museums for example um and another would be mm-hmm. teaching archaeological methods approaches and insights uh in universities and in publications for other archaeologists yeah i think actually that'd be a pretty good way to sum it up you've got teaching for the public sharing with the public and then teaching the methods and and theories to future archaeologists do you think there's anything we're missing to understand a basic picture of the field as a whole no i think that pretty much covers it all i mean the important thing is to remember that archaeology is a destructive process so when you're going through all these different stages and all these different steps and, and sort of you have to keep in mind that picture of, or that idea that archaeology is destructive. So sometimes you have to ask yourself, even is excavation even necessary? Should we be excavating something or should we just record it and, and leave it in place and, and use what we uh, can from just recording it? And I mean, there's an increased I don't know if it's actually if it's increased. I'm going to talk mm-hmm. confidently, even though I'm not. There's an increased use in of x-rays to like examine things in the soil without having to actually pull them out of the soil. And that would be the benefit of that, is you can actually say something about objects that are in the ground, their context, their relationship to each other, and leave them where they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, I mean, that's a big one is leaving objects exactly where they are and, and using things like you've pointed out, sort of x-ray, LIDAR and and whatnot um, to make sure we don't actually have to destroy the site, destroy the context. And then even with objects that have been excavated, um, there's definitely a big push and a big movement towards creating and using less destructive or even non-destructive methods altogether. Um, it used to be in the in the past, well, still a little bit today, that in order to uh, get to certain levels of information or certain types of information, you'd have to physically destroy the artifact or or the you know fish vertebrae itself. But there are new methods that minimize that, so you can take smaller samples or even like for studying glass beads, I, I use something called XRF analysis, which means I don't actually have to destroy the beads to study them. Hmm. So there is a, a nice push towards non-destructive methods now. There's a, this uh, brings me a little bit to something that's from uh, my field of medieval literature, which is uh, ancient and medieval texts sometimes stored in uh, scrolls have been found mm-hmm. and unrolling the scroll then destroys the text. And there's new technology that allows them to take x-ray pictures of the scroll and actually read the text without ever unrolling it. So the te- the scroll um, isn't destroyed, but we get to yeah. read what was on it. That's cool. That's really cool. It's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for You're the Expert about your specialization. And there's three things we're going to talk about in there. And the first is about glass beads, which is what you wrote your MA thesis on. Mm -hmm. Um, Specifically, you wrote about glass beads found on the West coast of, or the, in Western British Columbia, uh, 
in uh, Saxwomen. 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 That's what the underline yeah. under the X is. Yeah. <laughs> At first, every every time you write it, the X is underlined, and I did not understand what that signified as I was reading <laughs> it. At first, I thought it might even be like a typo, but no, clearly not, because it's every time. Saxwomen. Yeah. Sakwoman, yeah, that's the way I was taught to write it from uh, the nation I worked with. Okay. And you found, so your uh, thesis is about a find. Did did you find? Um, I, no, not my myself. Um, I got involved on the second day, the day after the first few had been in, uh, found. It was um, my colleague who was a, a member of the Shishal Nation was monitoring some work. And that's when they found um, the uncovered um, the the beads and I was asked to go back the next day to help with the bio arc aspect of it and on our way out he started saying you know we found these glass beads um, and showed me I think he had grabbed maybe five or six of them um, at the time and it sort of it all sort of started with that so there's this find of like two hundred and something uh, glass beads mm-hmm. near a uh, piece of a jawbone of a woman so Mm -hmm. they're connected to her and there's a key sentence in your thesis that was really helpful not just for understanding your thesis but for me for understanding what archaeology is which is you say something about wanting to be able to discuss this archaeologically rare style of blown glass bead and how they can be used to develop a time frame for when this uh woman shishal 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 Yep. For when this Shishal woman lived and died at Sequamen. Mm-hmm. That that was like a key for me because it's not about the glass bead. It's mm-hmm. about what the glass bead can be, how the glass bead can be used to develop a time frame for when this woman lived and died. Right? The emphasis, you move past, you spend your whole thesis talking about the glass bead and detail and understanding it. But in your introduction to it, the key is... All this detail and rigor and methodology and understanding every single thing about it is just so we can uh, be more confident about learning something about this person. Yeah, yeah. And and glass beads are glass beads are sort of unique in that um, a lot of them do have very definite time frames of when certain styles were in use when new styles came about and because we have written records that's where the the historical side comes in um, to these historical glass beads because we have these written records uh, detailing glass beads and the manufacture of glass beads and where and when they were being made um, we can use that with the physical beads themselves when they're found on sites to give us uh, a, a more clear picture of of what was happening at the site at a certain period of time. Right. So these are smooth, unadorned, mold-blown glass beads. Uh, all parts of that are important. Smooth, mm-hmm. the glass is, I mean, that's fairly self-evident yeah. part of it. The, the glass yeah. is smooth. Unadorned because this is a, a very rare archaeological find, but presumably adorned glass beads have been found. So it's the unadornness that makes this unique or close to unique. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it makes them, 
it, it differentiates them from other blown glass. Blown glass beads themselves are very rare, um, but the fact that these are unadorned, they have no additional paint or grooves or anything on them, differentiates them from other sites where, um, I don't want to say fancier, but sort of more decorative uh, glass beads, blown right. glass beads have been found. So yeah, it's a, a defining factor. And then mold blown, uh, blown glass beads differentiates from like, you know, you could make a piece of glass in a few different ways, but blown as it implies means they're, uh, the glass was blown, which makes it hollow inside. Yeah. Um, and mold blown is a technique developed in, uh, 1876 in Bohemia. Uh, but it's like, uh, you use a mold and you make a whole bunch of beads in a row, like, thir uh, yeah. uh, eight or 10 beads all in a row. And you can tell that these particular beads found were mold blown. You can tell that they're made in a mold because there's seams on them. So the mold has, you know, a top and a bottom and you put it both together. And so you look at the bead, you can see the seam, you know, it's mold. Yep. Um, you know, it's blown cause they're e empty inside. Yep. They're hollow. And you know it's made in a row of linked beads because there's like a broken cuff, like the little cuff on the top of a um, uh, Christmas light. Yep. A Christmas uh, light bulb has a little bit of glass that sticks up that's covered by the aluminum. Well, these have a little cuff on the top and bottom that tells shows that they were all in a big link and then they were broken apart. Yeah, essentially. Um, they have very, that ends, those ends you're describing, they're called the collars. And when... When beads were are made in a big chain, um, when you break them apart, those collars are very, very short because you don't have a lot of space between the next bead. Um, and then also right. in some of the beads, we could actually see where the, the collars hadn't been broken, uh, blo broken, hadn't been broken perfectly. So we could actually still see pieces of the next bead still attached. So that was um, that was a big hint that they had been made in a, a chain and um, a linked chain of who knows up to I think at the time up to 30 beads could be made in one chain and then broken down right. into individuals. So um, the fact that we could see they had been blown in a chain and we could see the seams from the molds um, helped narrow down to the specific type of mold that was invented in 1876. Um, mold blown beads were invented prior to that, but the mold that allows you to make multiple beads at once was 1876. So you know for sure that this woman died before 1876 because you know when this was invented, right? She would have died after 1876. Oh, after 70, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she was died before because a time traveler came yeah. and brought something that wasn't invented yet and buried it with her. Yeah. Obviously. <laughs> no, she died after yeah. the time that the thing that was buried with her was invented. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and it was invented in Bohemia and like, it means it was definitely these glass beads uh, were made after 1876 and most likely they were actually made in Bohemia. Yes. Yeah. There's... That's not like a complete open and shut case the way the date is, but it's very likely. Yeah. Nothing in archaeology is 100%. Uh, right. 
we don't really have specific ways of knowing. But and I do say most likely because there were other countries at the time that were making blown glass beads. But at that point in time, with the invention of this specific mold, Bohemia sort of skyrocketed to the top of production. They were producing so many blown glass beads that that's what makes it most likely that the beads came from Bohemia. Right. Like, and that matters because it locates this woman in time of her burial, but it also tells something about like the trade because they had, they couldn't have had something that was made in Bohemia unless they're in some way trading with Bohemia, which we know from history and memory that there was trade with Europeans, but we now have a specific example of a specific kind, a specific trading that was happening for sure. Yeah, sort of, sort of. It definitely can speak to trade, um, not necessarily with Bohemians themselves. Right. Um, Bohemia, they were selling these beads all over the place. So um, the beads were made in Bohemia, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they made their way to North America with Bohemians. It could have easily have been the British or the French. Um, if these beads were more common, that would help us sort of try to understand a bit more about how they ended up in Southwest British Columbia. Unfortunately, because these beads are so rare and so few of them have been found in North America, I kind of have no choice but to say, I have no idea how they got to um, (laughs) this specific area of, of North America. Nobody's sure. And then the way that there, there's like 200 beads that seem to be buried with her. Mm Mm-hmm. So that tells us something about burial practices and specifically about how European trade objects are are or are not integrated into First Nation cultural practices. Yeah, it definitely um, speaks to the use of European goods when Europeans first arrived. Um, they arrived in British Columbia relatively late compared to the rest of Canada. Um, so there's not as long of a, a period of um, colonization. A lot of things I've read about it and what I really think could be true is that uh, the use of glass beads were resistance. It was a a form of resistance to European colonization um, because beads have been in use in North America for thousands of years. So beads themselves were not new objects. It was just a new material. Right. See, this is where like, okay, I follow... Beads are not new. They're using beads in the same way that they did before. Mm-hmm. That tells us something about cultural practices and the interaction of these cultures. And But I don't quite follow why that's resistance. They're not being used to, to signify changes necessarily in, in cultural practices because the cultural practices themselves aren't changing and Europeans wanted them to change um, okay. on the surface through the use of, of European goods. It might have appeared as though... Uh, things were changing. Um, but the fact that the practice, the the use, the specific use of beads themselves, the glass beads didn't change. It could just be signifying resistance. You know, Europeans, you guys are here, you're bringing your goods, but we're still going to use them how we want to use them. Right. So it's, it's specifically like the Europeans want a cultural change. And so the fact that it isn't changing is what... Mm-hmm means resistance. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
is there anything that you feel we're missing to talk about specifically your thesis and the glass beads? No, no. That's, uh, that pretty much covers it. They're just, they're so unique and they're so rare that there's kind of not much known about them, not much to go off of. So your specific um, training is bioarchaeology. And you said even like you got called into this site originally to help with the bioarchaeology because that's your specialization. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only because the glass beads were there and so unique that it kind of pulled you away from what has had been your first uh, focus. Yeah. Um, so bioarchaeology, this is specifically, we've, like we talk about archaeology as the study of, the, of humans in the past, but based on materials. Bioarchaeology would be when those materials are biological, yes. specifically bones. Yes. For the same reason that you're mostly studying stone, you're mostly studying bones because they're a material that continues to exist over time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And this is where, like, coming back again to uh, criminology seems especially useful for a study of bioarchaeology because in a lot of, there seems to me to be a lot of... uh, general overlap with there's uh human remains and you want to use them to understand what happened and not just what happened to this individual in the case of archaeology it's a bigger picture than that yeah often but a lot of overlap it seems to me that like the specifics of how this individual lived and died tell you things about this context but also about the individual in the same way that a forensic scientist studies the context to tell you what about a a crime that took place yeah yeah yeah, it's kind of it's very similar to to forensic anthropology um it's just on older remains and we can't we don't necessarily always identify specific people whereas the goal of forensics uh is to identify specific people but it very much is the same. Very similar. Right. We talk about, like, that reminds me of something that we haven't really talked about in terms of archaeology and that's relevant to your thesis, too, is when we talk mm-hmm. about the past, a lot of people kind of think of archaeology as, like, the past, by which you mean the 1200s. Uh, but this these glass beads are, you know, 1876 at the... Uh latest which is a long time ago but might be a closer time scale than what people might expect as what they think Mm -hmm. of as archaeology and we talked all the way through our conversation here about like you talk to people who know and remember what happened and that might be surprising for people but it's part of the reason that might be surprising is the time scale maybe is not as long as people might expect yeah archaeology covers any time scale imaginable you can have sites that are 12,000, 14,000 years old. You could also be working on sites that are 80 years old. Um, It it varies. And there is a field called historical archaeology where you are working on um, the more modern things from the 1800s, 1900s, 1700s, etc. So it really does, it covers any and every time scale you can imagine. 
And then when you're looking at uh, bioarchaeology, that it seems to me like one of the big issues that's got us around that is uh, you, no matter what the materials are, you want to be respectful of the people who used them, but that's got to have a different meaning when it comes to bioarchaeology than it does when it comes to, you know, projectiles. There are bioarchaeology. It's, it's very sensitive. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's, we, it's governed by a lot of different ethical considerations. Um, and the, the first question even you should be asking is, is it necessary? Um, you know, if we uncover human remains, sometimes they're uncovered by accident. A lot of times they're uncovered by accident. Um, is it necessary to disturb them further? Is it necessary to excavate them? And if they do have to be excavated, is it necessary to study them at all? Um, I'm a big fan mm -hmm. of not disturbing human remains. I, I really don't like it when burials are uncovered. And, and um, I understand sometimes they have to be excavated. It's, it's not my favorite thing. And I, I really try not to do that. Um, but it all comes down to the, the descendant communities, whoever they are and, and what their wishes are. And we have to respect that. That's the first people you should be talking to are the descendants of these individuals who are uncovered. Talk to them and, and find out um, what's the best way to go about it. So like, yeah. And that seems to be a good general practice for archaeology yes. in general, general practice in general. But uh, when it comes to human remains, that's so much more emotionally uh, intense, right? It is, yeah. Is there, like, a lot of my thoughts about my questions for you about bioarchaeology, because I didn't research <laughs> it as much as I researched the other things, because, I mean, <laughs> I just didn't. Uh, <laughs> So is there like the descendant yeah. community has the final say ought to, and in an ethically, uh, uh, in an properly and ethically operated archeological situation, the descendant yes. community decides what happens. Is there like a statute of limitations that is, do you approach those remains really differently if they're 50 years old or if they're 3,000 years old um, or well, does it yeah, not really I matter? I think the general rule is if it's 50 years or less, then it's a forensic investigation first and foremost because they could be, right. um, okay. it could be a modern, a more modern crime scene. That makes sense. I um, picked a year out of my head and 50 probably wasn't long enough, but <laughs> go on. Yeah. So, and within any case, um, every time human remains are uncovered, the first thing that happens is a coroner is called because they have to give the say for, is this a forensic investigation? Um, is it not a forensic investigation? Um, and from there, no, it should always be up to the descendant community. Um, no statute of limitations whatsoever. And like, again, <clears throat> It feels like we've had an answer. You've given an answer to this, but I'm going to say it out loud anyway, even though I anticipate what your answer is. <laughs> is there any circumstance where the archaeological concerns for the advancement of knowledge trump the more personal concerns with respect for the dead? No, not at all. No. There never, ever should be. 
Um, you know, you talk to different bioarchs who different work in different areas of the world and, and with different communities and, and different histories, you might end up with different answers or, or um, different details to answers. But in my own experience and the way I like to practice, no, it should never, ever trump the concerns of descendants. So there's some, like, there's a lot of the... Uh specifics of the methodology of bioarchaeology that we could talk about uh like chemical testing is a thing for all kinds of archaeology but specifically when you come to living uh remains there's the possibility of Mm -hmm. testing dna which is going to matter for understanding like the again the context understanding who these this person is not necessarily who this individual is so we can find out who done it but like how people are connected to each other mm-hmm. and related to each other or not um and there will be living things have predictable decay and response rates so you can do chemical tests to know things about mm-hmm. the dating of living things more reliably than right. inorganic things but beyond that i think is there anything else about bioarchaeology you think we should specifically touch on before we move on? No, no. I mean, you could talk about the methods of bioarch all on its own. There's so much to it. But no, I think um, no, I think we've covered the, the important things. I mean, can you give us, uh, any, is there anything, any specific methodology that might be interesting to tell us a bit about? Um, well, there's you can get sort of different levels and, and different types of information from different methods. So if you're interested in looking at um, geographic regions of where people have lived, where they've moved from, uh, you could study isotopes like oxygen and um, nitrogen and um, carbon, all of that. And, and that'll also help you look at the things people were eating and and all of that can tell you about different social status and uh, differential power structures and hierarchies uh, based on diet. You can look at, you can look at DNA, ancient DNA to study um, disease and the spread of disease and illness. Um, You can do something called paleopathology, which is looking at the, um, more often than not, looking at the macro side of, of disease and illness and trauma, you just by examining remains. So there's, there's a lot of different things you can, you can do. This makes me think of two different things. Uh, I had a friend who was a dentist, Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I, I feel a little bit conflicted about being friends (laughs) with a dentist, but anyway, I have a friend who's a dentist who said he can tell in an 80 year old, uh, whether they used a soother mm-hmm. when they were mm-hmm. a baby, because the shape of the teeth and the shape of the mouth and the it is different based on whether they used a soother or not. Seems to me like the same kinds of that comes from experience, having seen a lot of mouths. Uh, it seems to me like the same kind of thing is going to be very valuable for osteoarchaeology. You can tell, or bioarchaeology, you can tell by the shape of any given bone. Uh, jaw, hand, toe, knee, you can tell specifics about how that person lived their life and what they did with it because life changes the way bones look. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, everything you do with your body alters, obviously, your body. Um, and yeah, it's exactly right. We we know on any given skeleton, there is certain there are certain bumps and certain rough spots and certain grooves in specific areas. And there's a range of, of completely normal variation um, where, you know, in some people, it's not as pronounced of a, a bump and other people, it's more pronounced of a bump. And as soon as you come across something that falls without that normal variation and makes you stop and say, well, you know, this is a little bit different. Maybe it's a little bit rougher. Maybe it's a little bit heavier. That tells you something about a certain period or um, extended period of this person's life. And the other thing it kind of makes me think of is I read recently about a uh, uh, people studying in I think it was Greenland. The ice in Greenland can tell based on the lead content in the ice stratification based on the year, they can tell the economy of Rome at that time because Rome is smelting silver and that puts lead into the air and the lead is in the ice and more lead means they were making more silver and less lead means they were making less silver. What you just said about a second ago about like the chemical or the elements and compounds that are in the body Mm -hmm. can tell you an awful lot about not just that individual, but about, you know, things that are happening in the whole world at that time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a bit about pseudo-archaeology. Pseudo-archaeology, like pseudoscience, this is uh, something that claims to be archaeology, but isn't. It's using the same, making the same kinds of claims, making the same kinds of uh, claims to the same kinds of authority, but to, you know, not doing it right. What makes something pseudoscience is you're not following the methods and rigors that scientists require to reach a conclusion. And with pseudoarchaeology specifically, it's just that same thing, right? Real archaeology relies on data. So you, no matter what you think about what the world is like, about what was happening at a particular time, about what a particular area of the world, uh, if the data contradicts that, you have to change your mind. And that's one of the hallmarks of pseudo-archaeology is uh, working from the opposite direction. Instead of the data informing the conclusion, you have a conclusion and then seek out data to reinforce it yeah exactly that's definitely one defining factor even in the same like uh when i first started writing my phd thesis on medieval literature um my starting uh approach was like well i know what i want to think about this book so let me find all the scholars who've ever said what i think also and i quickly realized that i should do the exact opposite find every scholar who ever thought i was wrong see if they're persuasive yeah. uh that's the hallmark of a methodological rigor is you try to disprove yourself not try to prove yourself right mm-hmm. and the other thing that distinguishes pseudoarchaeology from real archaeology is We've talked, it's come up several times in our conversation how important context is. Mm-hmm. Pseudo-archaeology does not respect context. Like, it's important for pseudo-archaeology. What makes it pseudo 
is, yeah. you know, Mayan uh, pyramids are the same as Egyptian pyramids because they're both pyramids. That is a classic example of they may what you're not paying attention to is context, which is what is so very important for real archaeology. So any argument you make about how, well, they look the same because of this and they're made from this, well, but they're in different contexts, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. This is the reason for real archaeology's obsession with apparent minutia or minor details like, you know, a discarded shard of pottery that might not seem to mean anything as it provides context, uh, which is how you can get a, uh, an informed picture of even what is happening. And without that context, you're not like, that's what makes something pseudo. Yeah. Yeah. It, it takes a lot of attention paid to detail um, to form a hypothesis and, and ultimately theories. And uh, pseudo-archaeology likes to skip a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's exciting to come up with an amazing uh, hypothesis about something fantastic that happened in the world. I can see where that is tempting. And paying attention to the minutia of the details of the context uh it is hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it you know what? It can be super boring to be honest. It really can. Um, but you gotta do it. And some uh some archaeologists, and I'm thinking particularly of uh Richardson and Fetter, mm -hmm. think that fence sitters, people who don't necessarily think, yes, definitely Mayan pyramids and Egyptian pyramids were both built by aliens. Mm -hmm. But they also think that is absurd nonsense. Mm -hmm. They're on the fence. They're somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. Might be just as bad for archaeology as true believers because they consider that if the public thinks of all claims as being basically equally valid, mm -hmm. uh, that's almost as bad for archaeology as if the public actually is super convinced that ancient aliens built everything. Yeah, it, it's true. Um, when an art, when a theory comes out, it's gone through an incredible amount of work to get to that theory, including of which it's evaluation by peers. Um, and so if you all of a sudden come across a theory that you've got 98% of archaeologists saying, no, that's not right, there's a reason for that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it can be dangerous to or harmful, I should say, to to weigh everything equally when you've got these theories that 98% of us are saying, no, this is why that's wrong. So, but like the, the argument that would be made against that is, isn't that just an appeal to authority? You're telling me I can't believe what I want because authorities are telling me it's wrong. Why, how, what's, what's pseudo about making my own conclusions? Yeah, it, it's true. Um, and everything has to be, I think that archaeologists do have to keep an open mind to a lot of these new theories. Um, and it's one of those things that time and, and rigorous testing and review will reveal. But pseudo-archaeology typically, it's got sort of three main characteristics that go hand in hand. And that's how a lot of these are, are sort of evaluated. So you've got lacking in use of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. um, or incomplete use of the scientific method. You've got 
very simple answers being provided to very complex questions. And then the big one is as soon as somebody says they're being persecuted or at odds with the archaeological community, and that's where the archaeological archaeological community, 98% of us are saying, no, this isn't right. And then this person is saying, look, they hate me. They're hiding the truth. Um, typically, all of these go hand in hand. Um, and that's sort of how we we look at these things as being uh, pseudo-arch or define them as being pseudo-arch. Right. But like... One of the things that seems like a seems to me like a common uh, hallmark of pseudoarchaeology is, or of a certain branch of cer- certain kind of pseudoarchaeology anyway, is it's ideologically motivated. You have an idea about the world that you want to try to prove. This is the same kind of thing you were saying earlier about like uh, European or white supremacist archaeologists who wanted to make the point that white European nations are superior and to prove that we need to prove that uh first nations didn't build anything of value and so anything they build we devalue and that proves our point for us right yeah exactly nationalistic movements for sure so national nationalism is tied and like you know uh the nazis hired a bunch of archaeologists to prove that uh there was a unified uh ubermensch german history yep. right yeah absolutely. the big part and of it, it comes back to this like the conclusion comes before the data you have the yeah. conclusion you say this is what i'm going to prove now let me go find the data that's going to prove it yeah yeah absolutely but isn't that like if that was how you say i mean 19th century archaeologists uh your early 20th century archaeologists as a whole tended to work that way Mm-hmm. then isn't that like shake doesn't that it doesn't that like bode <clears throat> poorly for archaeological consensus yeah yeah i think it definitely does and i there's been a lot of discussion about exactly that about um the methods that were being used and the conclusions being drawn. And now they're very recognized, like archaeologists recognize that a lot of archaeology, the original archaeology that came out was just ridiculous and awful and, and very racially motivated in many cases. Um, it's just a matter of, of communicating that out to the public as well. Um, mm-hmm. And recognizing that and building up from that, moving away from that and saying, yes, this happened and this is how we are going to improve our discipline to ensure that this doesn't happen again. This is where like a lot of the pseudo-archaeology seems, a lot of pseudo-archaeological theories seem kind of fun and almost harmless. Like um, Mm -hmm. I'm not at all, aliens are not at all appealing to me, but like (laughs) Atlantis, that would be really neat if that was true. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, you know, I don't, I, on record as saying I am uh, absolutely unequivocally do not think it's uh, even possible, but it would be really cool if there was yeah. an Atlantis. It would be really cool if there was Bigfoot. Like I, there's a part of me that would love cryptozoology to be real. That would be awesome. Yeah. That all seems so tempting. Um, yeah. And I'm drawing attention to the like nationalism mm-hmm. and the, uh, colonialist and racist underpinnings of early archaeology and connecting that to pseudo-archaeology because it strikes me that um, 
those things that seem like harmless, like what harm would it do if you let people believe that Atlantis is real? Who who really cares? Well, right. what it does, the yeah. real harm that it does, among other things, is it uh, reinforces these racist narratives about like white Europeans are where all advanced uh, technology comes from. Ultimately, no matter where you find it in the world, I can trace it back to an imaginary uh, Atlantis. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It sort of normalizes this idea and it um, it does sort of seem very harmless and very silly until you start to realize, no, you know, there are actually a lot of people who do believe that. Um, and it, it causes very real harm to communities who are constantly having their their histories rewritten in favor of, as you say, this imaginary white European group of people who, you know, spread out from this city in the ocean um, and therefore are responsible for all these other things. And, and also it plays off the idea of the inferior inferiority versus superiority right. um, ideas as well that, you know, um, people in Egypt, you know, ancient peoples in Egypt weren't capable of building the pyramids. They didn't know how. And fortunately <laughs> for them, this extinct group of, of very tall white people from Atlantis came and told them everything they need to know on how to make the pyramid. Um, and it's, it's that sort of underlying um, racism that you find in almost all pseudo-archaeology that, yeah, at, at glance you don't see it until it's, it's pointed out and then you start to see a lot of it. And like, likewise, the pyramids were built by aliens because it's more plausible that uh, aliens did it and left no yeah. uh, verifiable traces than that exactly. an African uh, society could build a thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Or, or even in North America, you know, uh, aliens built these mounds because uh, First Nations people weren't capable of doing it. Right. That general idea. Yeah. Although pretty I'm pretty sure that Merlin built Stonehenge. <laughs> <laughs> Just just putting that there. Anything else that you think we're missing for talking about pseudo-archaeology? No. Again, it's it's such a big topic and you really could just spend hours talking about it. Definitely. I, I think the big one is Atlantis. I hear a lot about it, uh, Atlantis. Uh, even in Ottawa recently, I went to a talk a group gave trying to justify the existence of Atlantis. Um, so that's the one that pops up quite a bit. Atlantis is another example of something where there's an overlap between our two specializations because yeah. Atlantis is a work of fiction yeah. by a fic an author who uh, announced that what he was doing was writing fiction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Atlantis was invented by Plato and he said he was inventing it and did not claim that this was real. <laughs> Exactly. So just uh, in a thousand years when people are searching for Hogwarts and the real site of Hogwarts. This is, I, I said a second ago that I think Merlin built Stonehenge. Obviously, I don't actually. And my specific specialization in literature is Arthurian literature. And oh. can I just tell you how once a month someone comes up and says that they've found the real site of Camelot or the real site where the real historical Arthur was buried and oh. Arthurian scholars like collectively tear our hair out because I bet. Yep. guess what? There wasn't a real King Arthur <laughs> <laughs> or if there was, 
no one cares because he didn't do anything that's at all <laughs> connected to the Arthur that you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now it's time for the segment we call Peer Review, or I tried my best, but I still do not understand. <laughs> Here are some questions I still have about archaeology in general that maybe you can clarify for me. And here's number one. Okay. Is archaeology a science? Oh, boy. Wow, that's opening a big door there. Uh, that is a big debate that sort of still goes on. Um, I There's a, an old quote by, I think it was Alfred Kroeber, who once said that archaeology is the most scientific of the humanities and the most humanistic of the sciences. And I, I sort of, I think I agree with his sentiment. It's this hybrid. It's this wonder. And I think it's a wonderful hybrid of the, the arts and, and the sciences. And it shows how the two fields or the two disciplines can work so well together because we do use a lot of science. We use a lot of, um, like we've talked about, you know, x-rays and chemical testing and uh, the scientific method and, and much of our work. Um, but we involve so much of the arts. We look at written written literature. We look at oral stories, oral histories. So in answer to that, <laughs> I, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a science and I wouldn't say it's not a science. I just I think it's in my own personal. I have to specify this is just my own personal idea on it because everybody's got a different idea on it I, I think it's just a wonderful mix of the arts right. and the sciences a lot of these questions in this segment by the way are going to be asking you for your personal feelings or uh understanding of things that i i gathered to be kind of questions in archaeology some of them will be things i just don't understand yeah. but some of them will be like for example are you a uh processualist or a post-processualist, or is that a meaningless yeah. question? Another one of these questions, opening a big can of worms. Um, I, in my theory class that I took as a grad student, uh, my prof was sort of getting at exactly this question. He was asking each of us to define what theoretical background we come from. And I said that I don't necessarily lump myself in anywhere. Mm -hmm. I value all different theoretical um, bringings, if you will. Um, I, I think it's important to look at everything from multiple viewpoints and through multiple lenses. So I wouldn't call myself a processualist and I also wouldn't call myself a post-processualist, which my prof did not like that answer. <laughs> um, I, I just, I think it's important to not not back ourselves into a corner where we're only looking at something through one specific viewpoint. It's, it's a bit of a tunnel vision, I feel. So I, I, I think it's important to, to take aspects of, of post-processualism and processualism in our work um, on a case-by-case -case basis. And for the listeners, my understanding of the difference between these two approaches is, uh, and correct me if it's incorrect, but uh, is that processualist is essentially boiled down to a real appeal to science and objectivity in archaeology. Post-processualist mm -hmm. is a return to or an emphasis on the individual and uh, a much more uh, human perspective, arguing yeah. that uh, objectivity is impossible. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good way to sum it up. So next question, how much gatekeeping is appropriate in archaeology? Like we've been talking about uh, pseudo-archaeology, who should be allowed to call themselves an archaeologist and who decides who gets to be an archaeologist? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I am not a fan of gatekeeping. I think it causes more harm than good. Um, I do think that you do, I think that people do need to have some level of training and some level of understanding, especially when it comes to the importance of context and, and how to understand context and how to interpret context. So I do think that there is a certain level of training um, needed to become an archaeologist. I don't think that just anybody should be able to, to call themselves an archaeologist because then you run the risk of um, destroying sites and nothing like we've already said archaeology is a destructive process but now you're risking destroying sites without any sort of return on that without the information that you should be getting from it um you also run into the risk of that continued idea of of um, colonialism and and erasure that is still very much ongoing you know people just picking things up and writing their own stories to it without any regard for um the communities from whom this this archaeologist come or archaeology comes from. So I do think that there is a level of training that should be there, but I don't think there should be any prohibition on who can access that training. Hmm, right. I think that anybody should be allowed to to go and and get the training, and we just we need to work on making it more accessible. Now in the U.S., I understand that uh, you need approval by the state to do any kind of archaeological dig even broadly considered like you can't just go do an excavation yeah is that true in Canada as well it is yeah um it it varies a little bit per province as to the requirements um to get to that approval stage Uh, for example in some cases you have to have uh, a master's degree and say I don't know I'm gonna throw a number out there 200 hours of experience within that province in other provinces, you can do it with a bachelor's degree, but you have to have 300 hours of experience. So the the requirement, the specific requirements vary just a little bit, but it is um, there are requirements, and you do have to seek approval generally through the provinces um, and the the governments. So yeah, not anybody can just go and dig something up and, and conduct a dig. You do have to go through specific ethics and specific approval. Should archaeological artifacts, I I have a strong guess of what your answer is going to be, but uh, should archaeological artifacts be repatriated? Yes, I'm a huge fan of repatriation, and I would love to see more of it happening um, and becoming easier for communities to access repatriation. There's a lot of, of bureaucratic red tape that makes it difficult for repatriation to happen, and I would love to see that just blasted through and a big push for repatriation. I think it's really important and it should be happening more often than what it is. Mm-hmm. And not even necessarily, I don't think it should even be communities making, it shouldn't be, the onus shouldn't be on communities to request repatriation. Right. I think that institutions and museums should be proactively repatriating or approaching repatriation. And that makes a lot of sense. We talked a, a few times about approaches to archaeology in the past that you and 
archaeologists in general now think were misguided. Mm-hmm. Are there any present fixations or preoccupations that you think are in danger of skewing archaeology? Or even maybe less emphatically than that, like when the archaeologists of 2080 look back on work being done now, what's going to be like, oh man, classic 20 teens, you know? <laughs> um, I don't know, to be honest. There's so much discussion right now about constantly changing methods, improving methods to make things less destructive. Um, I think we're at this sort of big transition point in archaeology um, for for less destructive methods. I, I don't really, off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything that there's a specific fixation on. There is a lot of... Um, and it's been this way for a long time, basically since the 80s when it was invented, when the use of ADNA became available. Hmm. There's a big um, a big obsession with ADNA. And I mean, on one hand, rightfully so, ADNA is, is wonderful. It's a wonderful advancement. It's so interesting. Um, but sometimes I think people are a little too into it. Um, and then hmm. there's arguments pop up between... Um, the ADNA experts saying, well, the, the results tell us one thing and then, you know, archaeologists using it a different way or, or vice versa. I think there's, I don't know really how to describe it very well, but I, there's a big focus on ADNA right now that has some pros and has some cons. So that might be one thing, but I, don't, I just, I don't think there's really anything overly specific. No. Right. I mean, it's a tall order to ask you to, uh, you know, diagnose the flaws of your own (laughs) culture Um, such like archaeology is such a big and broad field that there are so many things about it i don't know nobody knows everything about archaeology so yeah it's hard to answer i'll include speaking of archaeology being a broad field i'll include some of my uh, bibliography that i read as i was preparing for this but i got a bunch of books out of the library and like two-thirds of them i barely read because i started reading them and was like oh this is not relevant to the kind of thing that steph does at all like you know greek urns i'm like well (laughs) i'm not even gonna read this yeah Um, i don't really know a lot about greek urns (laughs) (laughs) so we i've asked some big questions here's some smaller ones just two more uh smaller questions one What is BP and why do archaeologists think 1950 is the present? Uh, BP is just years before present. People in archaeology dates are sort of interchanged between AD and BP. Um, AD meaning like the zeroth century. So 2018 years ago is our zeroth century. So Sometimes you'll see dates as um, 1200 AD, which would be, say, like 800 BP, years before present. Um, Right. So, yeah, BP is just before present. That just means basically how many years ago from now or how many years in the past from now did something happen? 10,000 years would be 10,000 BP. But it seems like, based on what I saw, it really seems like BP isn't measuring to the present it's measuring to the 50s yeah i think that's to do i don't 100 percent know to be honest but i think it has something to do with um you have in the 50s all those the testing of atomic bombs um 
dramatically changed the level of carbon in right. in the air and, and thus absorbed into the soils. So around 1950, you see this big change in uh, levels of carbon when you're dating things. So you have to constantly keep that 1950 um, hmm. date in mind for carbon dating. So huh. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's all to do with uh, all the atomic testing. And finally, last of all, how do you spell archaeology? <laughs> the A or no A. <laughs> <laughs> I spell it with an A. A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y. Um, but I do see it. And I most people that I know, most archaeologists I know, include the A. Um, every once in a while, you see it without the A, with just the A-R-C-H-E-O-L-O-G-Y. But... You don't think like A-E-O is kind of foul greedy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, since we've solved those issues, thank you so very much for agreeing to do this, for joining me. This was, of course, the pilot episode of Halfway Expert. That means a few things to you, the listeners, I would love to make more episodes of Halfway Expert, but I'm going to be honest with you, it's a lot of work. So I'm only going to make more if people are listening and want to hear it. That means if you heard this episode and you liked what you heard, please let me know so that I can know whether I should keep on making them. You can let me know on Twitter, at HalfExpert. You can send me an email, halfwayexpert at gmail.com. You can let me know by rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes. And you can support me on Patreon, patreon.com slash clockworkscast. I will also be looking for new experts to talk to in our next episode. So if you have suggestions, please let me know, and you can send your suggestions to all of those places I just mentioned. And once more, I just have to say thank you so much to Steph. Where can people find you and your work? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at bones underscore Canada, on Instagram at bones.canada, and you can also find me at my website, www.bonesstonesandbooks.com. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I've been Dr. Paul Moffat. Trust me, I'm an expert. <laughs>